Hey everyone, it's Caleb, and I am excited to bring you today's episode of the Learner's Corner podcast. We are bringing back two guests who have been on the podcast this year uh, for part two of a conversation that we started earlier, and they are Tim Muehlhoff and Rick Langer, and they released a brand new book at, uh, at the end of last year called Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. And I talked with them earlier in the year and we had a part one conversation. And honestly, I just enjoyed it so much that I said, hey, would you be willing to come back and have a part two of the conversation? And so that's what we're covering today on the Learner's Corner podcast. Uh, But before we get into that, uh, I do want to tell you if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner, uh, one, it would probably, well, it might be helpful to go back and listen to part one of this conversation, which was uh, four or five months ago. And that, and the link will be in the show notes for it as well. Uh, but go back and listen to that. But if this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast, uh, and I guess you decided to ignore my advice, which is totally cool. I'm just excited that you're listening to the podcast. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about the vision for the Learner's Corner here. We want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations, because if you're like me, You've gone, you've probably gone through life and you've realized that you can't talk with certain people about certain things because you don't know what reaction that you're going to get from them. It's just, it's going to lead to, uh, like, uh, like a garbage fire type conversation to where like everything is just like going wild. There's lots of emotion in it. There's uh, a lot of anger, maybe shame in there as well. And yeah, a lot judgment, just all of sorts of different emotions. And you know, and you know, every time that we talk about this thing, it does not go well. Yeah. So we want to create the type of conversations and create a space so that you can have those conversations. That, and even if even if you don't feel like you can have those conversations, that maybe you can listen in on some of those conversations as well. Because that's my story. There's several times to where there was just certain subjects that I just didn't think that there was really, there wasn't a place that I could think of or not, not very many places to where I thought, oh man, I can have this conversation with somebody. And so that's really kind of the mission behind the learner's corner is to create a safe place to have difficult conversations and kind of going in tandem with that is that this is a podcast for lifelong learners. We truly believe that we can learn from anyone and everyone from anything and everything. And in some cases, it's learning how not to do things and learning from people who uh, who might not know, um, not not that might not know, but learning from their failures, learning from their mistakes, where they messed up and how we could do better in that as well. In some cases, it's learning from the people who have done things really well also. And so we're going to get into uh, my conversation, which, which there are... Uh, there are there are a few times to where just the heartbeat of the podcast aligns with um, with people who are wanting to do the same thing, and that's exactly what Tim and Rick are wanting to do as well as to create a safe place to have these difficult conversations, particularly as it concerns the church world as well. Now, before we get into that, I do want to give you my Learner's Corner recommended resource of the week, and today I want to give you uh, the um, I'm going to tell you about this brand new episode from, uh, well, at the time I'm recording this, it is a brand new episode from the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast featuring uh, Greg McEwen. He wrote uh, a book called Essentialism several years ago, and he recently came out with a brand new book called uh, Effortless, which I haven't had the chance to read, but it is on my reading list. And the title of it is called, you know, How to 10X Your Influence by Listening, What He Learned from Stephen Covey and how to live effortlessly. And he talks about these levels of listening to where uh, the first level is, you know, you just listen and you don't interrupt. The second level is you listen, but you inter- you interrupt, you tend to give advice. And then there's this third level of listening, which is deeper. You interrupt, but you don't interrupt to give your opinion. You interrupt to get clarity on the person to understand what they're going through better. And he talks about how that's where the true influence is found is in that third layer of listening. And honestly, like I tend to agree with him on that. And that's why I'm recommending the podcast. And I think it's, yeah, well, I'll I'll get into my thoughts on listening at the end of the show after 
uh, after our conversation or after my conversation with Tim and Rick. But before we get into that, I do want to tell you a little bit about them. Tim is a professor of communication at Biola University in La, La, La Mirad, uh, California, and a speaker and research consultant for the Center for Marriage and Relationships. He's also written several other books called I Beg to Differ, Authentic Communication, The God Conversation, and Defending Your Marriage. And then uh, Richard, who uh, goes by Rick as well. Rick is a professor of biblical and theological studies at Talbert School of Theology and director of the Office for the Integration of Faith and Learning at Biola University. And together, this is actually their second book that they've co-authored. Their first one was called Winsome Persuasion, which received a 2018 Christianity Today Award in Apologetics and Evangelism. And they have uh, they have co-founded the Winsome Conviction Project, which seeks to introduce civility and compassion into our discussion on differences. And so we're going to continue with part two of my conversation with Tim and Rick. Well, Tim and Rick, so excited to have you guys on the podcast today. It's good to be here. Thanks so much for having us come again. Yeah. And just as we get started, um, one of the things that I really wanted to talk with you guys, and we were even talking about it before uh, before we started recording, is I really wanted to focus our time on, like, if you're a leader and, you know, how do you, how do you lead the conversations in terms of presenting different views or disagreement? without dividing the team, or in some cases, dividing the church. And I just wanted to start out with just like, how do you personally lead through these conversations whenever you are the leader of a group of people? Well, let me give the 20,000 foot answer, and then Rick can jump into some of the specifics. So teaching communication classes, Caleb, we know that communication climates are the key part of any conversation. Just like outside weather, like can you go running if the heat index is 120? Yes, but it's not going to be healthy for you. It's not the run's not going to go well. So the climate dictates what you can do outdoors. Well, uh, a communication climate dictates what you can do in a conversation. Now, the climate is made up of four different aspects. One, what are the expectations you and I have of each other as we're having this conversation? right? Uh, We're not going to raise our voices. We're going to be civil. We're going to do all that kind of stuff. Second is acknowledgement. Do you acknowledge my perspective? You don't have to agree with it, but do you at least acknowledge the weight of it? Do you at least acknowledge that it's biblical, what I'm trying to say? Next would be trust. Do I trust you? Uh, Do I trust that this is an honest give and take conversation? Or is this a secret debate in which you're trying to get checkmate? And then last is commitment. What's our level of commitment between each other? If this conversation doesn't go well, if, if we can't resolve it, if we don't see eye to eye, is that going to end our relationship? So whenever, we, whenever I do consulting to corporations, ministries, I always ask them, what's your communication climate like? So that's true between two individuals, but it's also true of a church, a Christian university. So if the climate is bad, then you can't, you can't get to deep issues unless the climate is revived. And that's the first place I would start. I, so I think Kim's right about the communication climate thing. I think the, the interesting thing is to think about, as you were mentioning, Caleb, the idea of when you're the leader of some group or organization, uh, the thing I would say, just like with climate, there's kind of the mega climate and then the micro climate. So you have some sort of a prevailing, you know, we can have a debate about global warming or whatever else, but the point is there's these great big influences on climate. We experience it every year with the changing of the seasons. And you suddenly realize whatever high pressure and low pressure things do, they don't do anything like the tip of the Earth's axis, because that basically is what changes summer to winter and back and forth. And high and low pressure are relatively small and relatively brief things. All of them affect the climate when you walk outside. So the thing that the leader needs to remember 
is that they're kind of the interface between the great big climate outdoors and the microclimate people are about to experience when they walk in the door to the meeting or whatever that you do. And that's the part that you actually have control and influence on. You can't change the climate outdoors, but you can be aware of it. You can be aware of the fact that the people walking in have walked in through, as Tim was describing, 98 degree heat or perhaps, you know, minus eight degree temperatures. You know, you need to know what they walked in. But then you say, given where they walked in, what climate do I create here now in this in this moment? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I usually work on. And the the subtle thing is to try and make yourself aware of what what you might call the uh, hidden baggage left bag. You know, on the airplane, they at the airport they say you know check uh, unattended baggage. Well, it's great in an airport because there's a physical bag that you can see. In a conversation, you can't see the bag that the person is leaving untended or the part of their soul that they're not engaging. You have to look for other cues. And that's when you suddenly realize, oh, we have four people who are excitedly, animatedly talking about this issue. And we have three people who are silent. I wonder why. And to be the person who says, okay, I have to tend to all of those cues and then see how do we, you know, how do we dry out the other side? And you can do things like just say, hey, we spent a fair bit of time talking about this sort of issue. And it seems like many people feel the following, give some kind of a summary statement. I just wonder, what are some other angles we might take on this issue? And so you create space for others to speak up. You almost demand it because you're just saying, hey, we're not done until we at least, we may not believe all those other things, but at the very least, we should be thinking about them. So Doing that, being aware of alternative viewpoints that might be hiding there, and then doing things to invite them to come out would be two of the things that I'd think about a lot when I was facilitating that kind of a, a meeting. Tim, I wanted to go back to something that you, well, both of you had mentioned, you know, creating the the climate to where you can start doing that. Uh, what are some things that that, you know, if you're a leader that you can do to help create that climate and in a meeting and then kind of like the part two that I wanted to ask is how is that different? Like I think of like, there's probably two different leadership styles of leading the meeting. And then like, if you're a pastor or if you're the leader of an organization with, you know, you know, several dozen employees, you got to lead a little bit differently. How would you lead differently to create that safe climate, whether it be in the meeting or in a large group space to, to foster that type of communication of of disagreement and people showing up with their their real selves and their real opinions well caleb that's if you find out let me know (laughs) let me give you you my email address um no because you can't rush it see that's the problem you cannot rush a communication climate if there's not trust then you this conversation is going to be there's going to be a cap on the conversation. Mm-hmm. There's no way we're going beyond the trust level because I don't trust that this is a safe conversation. So you can bring the administration in. The administration, the pastors can say, hey, listen, this is a safe place. What do you think of the church? What do you think of church leadership? What do you think? And people are sitting there going, this is not a safe place. Anything I say is going to be used against yeah. me. So, so we, we have to address that. One, one quick thing I always try to do is if Rick and I are going to lead a discussion with, we're with the Winsome Conviction Project. If we're going to lead a discussion, mm-hmm. let's get the expectations on the table. Like, how do you want this conversation to go? And literally have them write out their expectations. Okay, I don't want people yelling. Okay, awesome. I don't want you stepping on my sentences. Like the minute I take a breath, you're jumping in disagreeing with me. Uh, I, I want us to believe the best about each other. I want us all to recognize we're committed Christians, even though we really disagree with what the Bible says. So I like having writing those out. Then, Caleb, when somebody violates it, just go, hey, let me just remind real quick of the things we just agreed on. That's kind of a nice way. And Rick and I have found we do a method we use with, uh, high schools and churches and uh, universities. It's a four-step process. And when people start to violate the process, you don't have to call out a person individually and just say, hey, can I just remind everybody of the process we're going to use when we start to... And Caleb, initially, people, people are fine. It's when they really get to the issue, they want to throw out all the structure. Like, I just want to say this. 
can I just say this? And it's like, yes, but you got to use the force process. Oh my gosh, hang on for a second. So we got dogs barking, yeah. we got trees being cut down. Raleigh, <laughs> good night. Welcome to welcome to podcast, man. All right, but that's my that's my quick thing is uh, I like what Rick said. The overall big climate's going to take time. Can't rush that. Now you can create a mini climate within your group. I like that. I like the fact that the ten of us we can form a climate that's different from the church's climate or even culture's climate. We can actually try to form this climate, right, in such a way that we can be counter. This is what St. Patrick did, Rick. I was thinking of our other book. Of uh, We wrote a book called Winsome Persuasion, where, where we had uh, different historical figures. And that's what St. Patrick did in Ireland. He created a community that when you walked in, it was really different than the community at large in a kind of a barbarous Ireland. And I think that is a good example of what, in theory, I mean, <laughs> Tim, as you recall, that that story was told as an example of what we thought the church as a whole should be. And I think of our moment culturally, and I feel like the church has become as much of a contested battleground as the world out there. And so we're really failing on that, that point. I think it's really, really hard. Um, and I think we've decided that as long as we have truth on our side, it doesn't matter if we extend love to the other. I know no one would ever say that because we all know that we're supposed to speak the truth with love. But as I watch the conversations, I'm like, no, I don't think you think, I don't that verse means what you think it means. <laughs> I think that verse should tell you not to be talking the way you're talking right now. Yeah, I was going to say, and it was even like I was just listening to um, an interview the other day. And one of the things that the guy said on it is that it feels like we're living in a time to where having unity and speaking the truth are like they're mutually exclusive things and that you have to choose one or one or the other. Uh, Any any thoughts on that? Well, let me just get political just for a second. And, and this is what was this is what was appealing to President Trump for many, many people is I want a guy who fights back. I want a guy who can get just as nasty as the other side. And I love the fact that he's sticking it to the press because we always know the press is. I mean, so, so there was a side to President Trump that people were like, finally, finally, somebody is punching back. And I, I think as Christians, we feel really hampered by this turn the other cheek, uh, speak the truth in love. Uh, Peter says, give your perspective, but do it with gentleness and respect. I think as Christians, we feel like we're hampered and we want to go back to the prophets. I mean, I want a prophetic moment where I just say the truth. Like, I'm sorry, but this is sin. Your lifestyle is this. I'm sorry if that hurts your feelings, but thus saith the Lord. Now, what time's lunch? You know, it's like... (laughs) Boom. And I think there's a part of us that wants to, and we're not anti-prophetic, Rick and I, but but my goodness, mm-hmm. there's a part of us that just wants to hit back. And I just want to tell you, this is what the Bible says, and I'm sorry if that offends you. Boom. And drop the mic. I think the cancel culture has is actually a, a general worked example of that, where you say the other side should not be allowed to speak. And so people feel bullied, right? I mean, and as Tim mentioned, I think Donald Trump became, for a lot of people who are on the more conservative side, he became my bully. <laughs> he, he was the bully who was on my side to push back against the bullying. And uh, there's a lot of things about his conduct that were kind of excused because, well, that's what I'm getting from the other side. It's time somebody stuck up. And I totally get the logic of that. The rub is... Jesus had the audacity of saying things like, you know, when when someone insults you, you don't return with ulcers. And Peter, you know, reiterates that same sort of context. You don't return insult for insult. Uh, and that's like, I think every bone in our body just cries up and says, no, that can't be right. And I think at some point this becomes a huge discipleship challenge. Uh, that we say, am I really going to follow Jesus? Like following Jesus was the thing on which my life depended. And if he says this is right, I'm just going to operate that way. 
So that's the the challenge. And we, you know, we pick up a few passages where Jesus, you know, says things to Pharisees or something in harsh tones and which I think are good good reminders, like Tim talked about, to say, hey, there is a place for prophetic moments. I think that's absolutely can't be denied. But it's weird because you think the prevailing ethos of Jesus was that way. You know, we, we find this story and we make sense. Oh, so Jesus is a guy who always runs around tipping over tables and screaming at people or calling them whitewashed workers. And I'm like, actually, that isn't his normal mode of conduct. It isn't Paul's normal mode of conduct. It isn't the New Testament ethos. Um, it's the the exception that's sometimes demanded because of such an exceptional world. We, but it's a little bit like, you know, just war or something. Yeah, sometimes you actually have to fight a war. Let me just go on record saying that shouldn't be our default position. Yeah, uh, I I want to go back a little bit. You know, both I think both of you have mentioned the importance of just building the trust factor as it concerns mm-hmm. having these types of conversations. What are some things that that you know we can do as leaders to help? build the trust to potentially create that environment where this type of communication can happen? Rick has so much more experience in the church than I do. He was a pastor for 20 years. Um, So Caleb, here's what I would say. Let's work on the trust and acknowledgement aspects of the communication climate, right? So I know that there's a Mm -hmm. controversy in our church. Let's say that. You know something's brewing. People disagree with each other. It's setting up a conversation where you bring in the best of both positions. Even though you're, even though the elder board, let's say, is clearly one position over the other, you bring in spokespeople for both, and you let them have the platform, and they give their very best arguments. Then I think afterwards, the elder board can still come out and say, hey, listen, we are position A, but I got to tell you, listening to B made us think. I mean, that was, that was pretty good. That was, and he was biblical. He loves the Lord. She loves the Lord. But, but that way, you say to the congregation, we understand the weight of your perspective. And we're bringing in two different perspectives. Now, here's what we get hit with, Caleb, all the time is, but I will not give the microphone to that person. I will not give weight to that position. And I'm saying that's the cancel culture Rick's talking about. Your position is such we're not even going to allow it to be expressed. And that I think we've really got to get away from. So I think a lot of good is done. When you give weight to both sides, even if the church knows the pastor and the elder board clearly advocate A, but we're going to give B expression because we know a lot of people in our congregation are leaning towards B or full-fledged B. That, that to me is a nice way. But, but Caleb, uh, it's so easy for me to say this as a professor because I know pastors who have done what I advocated and they've lost significant parts yeah. of their congregation. Well, I think if you if you look at the the Winsome Conviction book that we wrote, we had a whole section there talking about the historical nature of church conflicts and the the incredible danger of quarreling, as you find it in the New Testament. And I, I think we need to remember that because we often talk like, "What is wrong with the church?" And I, I hear people worrying that. These people can't really be Christians or, you know, they have this almost apocalyptic sense of, you know, how could we be this bad? And I'm like, I don't know the answer to the question of how we can be this bad. I just know we're being very biblical when we're this bad. There's plenty of precedent for bad people quarreling because you can't find any New Testament letter that doesn't talk about that. So I'm like, I don't know how we get this bad, but there's nothing that is new about it. So we end up living in a world where we are constantly managing that problem, and we wish we lived in a world where we could solve that problem. Another thing that I wanted to ask, and this kind of ties along with that, is what are maybe some of the the subtle ways that maybe we undercut our ability to have these conversations that we don't even realize? Like we say, hey, uh, this this is a safe place to have these types of conversations, but these people pick up these subtle clues that go, actually, this is not a safe place. What, uh, what would be some of those indicators? Man, I would remove that phrase from your lips. I would say uh, if, you, if, a, if a leader is going to say this is a safe place, uh, man, I would sit with that leader and I would say, okay, show it to me first. How is this a safe place? Mm. And what evidence might there be in the past that this was not a safe place? 
Um, man, Caleb, I'd be very leery of a church leader, a university leader saying, guys, this is a safe place. That is, that is you talk about jacking up the expectations. You just jack the expectations <laughs> through the roof and you better follow through on that. And I'll tell you, by old university, I'll just talk about my university. There's a floor. There's a doctrinal statement. You cannot go against the doctrinal statement. So, so, and by the way, Rick, you, you can jump in here too, but I am a mandated recorder. So when uh, a person comes into my office, a student, and says, I think I was sexually abused last night, I am mandated by the state of California to report that. So they need to know that ahead of time. Like if they start to go that direction, it's like, hey, listen, I am absolutely willing to listen. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. Please understand, I have to report this. It, it, what you're about to say, I have to report this. So I think, I think a church leader would say, hey, of course, this is a safe place. But we do have a doctrinal statement at Biola University. And if you cross the doctrinal statement, you better believe the next day you're going to be in a bunch of conversations. You know what I mean? With, with the administration that can punch your ticket. Right. So I, 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 I don't mind a leader saying, OK, let, let's put some boundaries on this conversation. OK, here are some things that are off limits. But but that being said, we want this to be a place where you can express frustrations and talk. But just know there are certain constraints we even have as leaders. So that, I, I think that's got to be out there. Otherwise, you're, you're writing a check you can't cash. Mm -hmm. I think the so the Biola analogy is an interesting one because what Tim was describing would be true of people who are faculty who literally sign that annually when we sign our contract. It's an affirmation that you know you're you're making. Um, if you're a student, students don't actually have to sign the same uh, thing. You know they need to come in at Biola. They have a profession of faith. It's a it's a Christian community, but. My gosh, you know, incoming college freshmen make this an affirmation. The places they go in terms of <laughs> life in a four-year period will take your breath away, you know. So you want students have the freedom to, to question and do all kinds of things like, like this. And I think with a church, you expect that you should have a full range of people questioning. This is one of the challenges, I think, for a pastor. You'll have people all across those spectrums. We don't usually enforce our doctrinal statements particularly tightly in the context of a church. At the moment of membership, you might. You have key affirmations. But on day-to-day -day practice, there's an awful lot of stuff that goes on in the church with no one kind of policing. And, and I think that's fine and right, because usually you have kind of an open community. You have non-believers who may be coming. You have brand new believers who are coming, people who don't know which way's up in terms of their faith. You get the whole spectrum. And so, you know, you don't tend to police the community that way. And safe looks different um, in, in that kind of context. And there should be a lot more freedom and there should be a lot of safety where a person says, hey, I really, uh, you know, I, I just can't wrap my head around the idea of Jesus really being God. Um, obviously that should be a conversation topic, mm -hmm. but hopefully that's the thing that instead of freaking out about saying, well, tell me more about that. What is it that makes the, you know, that feel so comfortable, uncomfortable. And by the way, if you want it to be a safe place, the key, when you ask a question, like, tell me more about that is that you actually want to hear a lot of times it's just a rhetorical strategy to figure out which of your apologetic levers you can get stuck into the right hole to move them. And that may be a thing that works for a given person at a given time, but by and large, I'd really encourage you to say, man, invite them to engage on this. Give them time to talk about it. We, we think about you know counseling sessions, and the first time a person says something that may be a little problematic, they're often throwing out the little thing to test and see what your reaction is. And if you go berserk, they go, oh, I'm sure glad I didn't tell the real problem because I told the real problem. They not only would kick me out, they'd set my house on fire. So that issue of saying, let me actually be curious. It's what I call be a chimp instead of a rhino. Don't smash their idea. Play with it. Say, huh, that's interesting. So what about this? And tell me more. What are some things that made, made that seem right to you? 
because that isn't a perspective I've heard or, or had. And, you know, invite a conversation is one of the ways to make a place far safer. And I think the worst thing we do is we act like if we're going to have an open conversation, we must have somehow converted to the other side. <laughs> it's like, guys, I mean, I've had I, my PhDs in philosophy. And I, I mean, I didn't go to a Christian school. I, you know, University of California is not exactly a hotbed of evangelical Christianity. So I had all kinds of civil conversations with people who were atheists and, uh, you know, a, a, in any extreme strike you can imagine. And the fact that I talked to them pleasantly doesn't mean I agreed with them. Mm -hmm. So the curiosity thing to me is a huge one. And with it, a little bit of empathy. Not that you agree with them again, but say, what yeah. What are they actually feeling right now? Is this a big deal for them? Does this make them afraid? Does it just make them anxious? Or are they cu truly curious? You know, we don't enter into the other person's life very well. And that would be a great skill to acquire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening to Rick going, amen. That is so awesome. And part of me is thinking, there's no way. So, so the bigger the group, uh, here's what I'll say: the bigger the group, the, it, it just doesn't. It, it's gonna. Yeah. People are gonna be sitting there going, "I can't say what I really think in this." I, I, there's just no way I can. So, so our friend, uh, a colleague of ours, Sean McDowell, has a YouTube channel, and he just had a conversation we listened to with a progressive Christian, who, who's left evangelicalism, and so mm -hmm. what this guy said was, "When I started to question evangelicalism." I got hit with shame and rebuke, and it, it, it was very clear that this, this was not acceptable for me to go around questioning the tenets of evangelicalism. So I love what Rick is saying, but we have got to show that you're not going to be penalized for questioning the status quo, and you're not. So we do a whole thing on groupthink, Caleb, in the book. We do a whole chapter on groupthink. And, and the central tenet of groupthink is loyalty. You are loyal to the group, and you do not go against the group. And so we've, so we've got to work really hard, and, and we're doing this. Rick and I are trying to lead something called faculty duologues, where faculty have great, honest conversations. But man, when you've got the administration sitting in the audience, and you've got students sitting in the audience, and faculty, it's going to take a pretty remarkable faculty member. Uh, who's going to say, ah, you know what, I'm going to trust tenure. I'm going to, I'm going to state my position. That, that's a unique person and that's a unique setting to try to pull that off. Any thoughts on that, Rick? Yeah. So I, Tim's putting his finger on, a, I think, a key issue of the larger the group, the harder it is to have safety in it. Uh, and you can imagine you know, the simple brute force reality of that is when you have a lot of a lot of people and a lot of public exposure to say anything, you're like, wow. And there's certain things we say in private that we'd never say in public. So safety, you know, goes down as numbers of people go up. Uh, the other thing is that the safety goes down as structure goes up. So back to the issue of Biola, the freedom a student has to investigate versus the freedom of a faculty member has for, you know, if, if I wake up tomorrow and decided I don't really believe in Jesus, there's a problem for me continuing in my current role. Um, so that, those things all are things that make a situation unsafe. And we just have to navigate that, you know, is, is driving down the road unsafe? And I'm like, if everybody stays in their lane, it isn't. If everybody watches the traffic lights, it isn't. And this is part of what I mean about having to manage it rather than solve it is we need to have lanes. We need to have a sense of what the structure and what it isn't. And then we have these conversations. And I think part of the thing at the back end is realizing every situation won't end with everybody harmoniously united. And we have real disagreements because we really disagree about things. And like with Paul and Barnabas, they had a real disagreement and they ended up parting ways in terms of their ministry project. And at some point, I think we should all take a bit of a deep breath and be reminded of that. And when we talk about this, we point out that Paul and Barnabas, 
there's a bit of a record in the New Testament after that blow up that Luke records in Acts 15. And um, what we discover is that they never spoke ill of each other. After that point, Paul was unrelentingly positive about Barnabas as they went on down the road. Realized their mission vision was incompatible with them executing that mission together. You know, their particular facet of the advance of the gospel. That said, they were able to respect the fact that the other person was doing something that needed to be done and was a valuable contributor to the kingdom. And I think that's one of the release valves for these the conflicts that grew within a church is to be able to say at some point we understand people may have to part over mission things. And the goal is to part in a way that we can still write the kind of letters that Paul wrote and describe Barnabas the way he did in those letters. So is what let's because the thing and we talked about this or mentioned this before so is there a place like to to do like the large group setting promoting of different views and if so like what what could that look like i mean you you think about the way we do these things and i think this is back this is where you realize oh yeah there really are lines we draw on the freeway you know there's kind of lanes that you stay in and so at Biola, we've had non-Christians come and speak at Biola, right? And mm-hmm. because they're saying something important that we think, or sometimes we have bring them in for debate. So you know you're going to have that. So there's all kinds of ways to have, you know, different viewpoints brought up. The hardest ones are with your near neighbors, not your far neighbors. Because your far neighbor, you know, yeah, he would just disagree with him. And the sides are all lined up and it's all, it's all hunky-dory. But when it's some person supposed to be on your side that says something that sounds like they're on the other side, that's when things go wonkers. And this has been, you know, back to the political season without, you know, making any claims about what side you should be on relative to are you enthusiastic about President Trump or are you not? The divisive nature, the polarizing nature, I think is, is just an objective fact. People hated him or people loved him. And when the person sitting beside you in your Bible study group, you suddenly discover, like if you're a Trump lover, and you assume that everyone in your evangelical church must be a Trump lover too, and then you find out that this person absolutely hates Donald Trump, you're suddenly like, oh, one of them got into our midst, you know? And of course, it works equally well in either direction, right? This is not a thing about which side. This is just that sense of, oh my gosh, betrayal. Uh, and that's hard. That's when they feel like a spy, not an enemy soldier. And there's the Geneva, Geneva Convention regulates how you treat the, an enemy soldier. You know the, the pattern. With a spy, you just shoot them at dawn. And I, I think that's what has tended to happen to us within the church Particularly recently, you know, I've been at it for 40 years, and I really do think the last five years has probably been the most chronically divisive that I've seen within the church uh, church world. One of the things, or another thing that I wanted to ask you about is if you're leading a group, whether or if you're in a one-on-one situation with someone who is just constantly—I can't think of another word other than—they're very defensive about their uh, beliefs. It's like, it's like, we can't even have a, it feels like we can't even have a conversation around the thing. They're, you know, not necessarily wanting to understand the other side. They just want to tell you, you know, here's why you're wrong. And here's what, uh, I believe or what I think and everything. What have, what have you learned about how to handle just those people? So it's, so Tim has developed the cottage industry of this by by having so many of his friends that he has those kinds of disagreements with. He called me up after a phone conversation, and it's like, who are these people? Well, you know, Caleb, that's that's the expectation part of the climate. So Rick is talking about some people we've actually used in the book who are just uh, they are not interested in conversation. This is not a debate. I'm not here to debate my beliefs. I absolutely believe my beliefs are biblical. I think you're unbiblical. Uh, I am not open to having a conversation about this issue. And the answer is, okay, understand that when you head in. This is not going to be a conversation about politics. This is not going to be a conversation about this theological issue. And you can't force it. So I I think you just say, okay, I'm not going to talk to this person about this issue. because. 
unless the climate really radically changes, I already know how this is going to end. It's going to end with us yelling. Uh, one person is going to storm away. So I think you would remember what the book of Proverbs says, a word spoken in the right circumstances. And so guess what? This is not the right circumstance. And so I, th I think one of the frustrating things is, um, but you teach communication. You have a PhD in communication. Yeah. So I know. Not, so I teach self-defense, Caleb. I, I've been <laughs> teaching self-defense at Biola. Uh, I've been doing martial arts for the last eight years. Guess what? That dude is six foot eight, 290 pounds. Yeah, but you have a black belt. Yeah, I don't have an Uzi. Get out of here. I am not going to fight that man. Why? I'm going to get, I mean, uh, maybe I can, who knows? So that's, you just need to put limits on, we're not ready to have this conversation. I'm sorry, the climate is not strong enough. So I think it's, that's wisdom of the Proverbs. It's yeah. Be discerning. So Caleb, you just painted a scenario. If that per if you're telling me that person is 98% defensive, I'm going to say, well, Caleb, then don't talk about that issue. <laughs> Remember that old joke, Rick? Remember that old joke? Doctor, it hurts every time I raise my arm. Doctor says, don't raise your arm. <laughs> what, are we, what, what are we doing? So, yeah. so Caleb, I would just, I would avoid those issues. And to, I speak at marriage conferences. We get these all the time. Every time my husband and I talk about finances, we get into an argument. It's like, okay, can I, a quick clarification. Every time? Yes. You get into a what? Argument. Okay. Here's why you're paying me the big bucks. Don't talk about finances. Because you're not ready to talk about it. The climate won't, the, you're going to go for a run. It's 140 degrees outside. It's not going to go well. Right? That's very frustrating to people. And like, I'm going to force my way in and I'm going to force you. Now, I think we can make people, I think we can force people to listen to us, right? But I can't force you to engage me. Mm. I, and so I, I think what we've been talking about right now, where, where it's really gone to the extreme and just starts, wow, this is kind of a non-starter. I think it's good to just acknowledge that can happen. You know, back to this whole New Testament expectation thing, you know, as, oh, there's some of these problems that are always there. I think one of the things that happens is you kind of start to peg the needle. And at that point, kind of everything shuts down and you're better off just backing off and saying, okay, this may still have to be addressed, but we're going to have to do it in a different time and in a different climate. The, the interesting thing to me are the people who are 60% there mm -hmm. and say, so what can I do to make that better? Because we sometimes say, because if it was all the way over, I couldn't do anything. Therefore, I now have a new rule to apply to everybody I meet and everybody you meet isn't actually pegged. And, and so one of the things that's interesting is start thinking about what's going on in their mind. Oftentimes you don't know. So this is back to my curiosity thing. Why don't you find out? Just give it a whirl. Hmm. Another thing you'll discover is for a lot of people, the things that we fight about with our, you know, kind of our moral convictions, religious convictions, political convictions, whatever, those things are actually kind of identity markers. That is a sign of our tribe. So what you're debating is my tribal membership, not an abstract belief. So to be able to say, oh, that's what's really going on here. And so when you approach the person, approach them differently, because you realize we're not having a philosophical discussion. I am about to step on the toes of his sacred points of attachment to his tribal group. And if I push him on this, I, he won't just be responding to me. He'll be responding to loss he will experience by no longer being a card-carrying member of his, his tribal group, so to speak. And those identity markers, we all have them. This is not a thing that makes that person bad. We all have our, our, our markers. And so if you realize this is a thing for him, then you need to be really careful in terms of how you approach it. You'd simply approach it differently. But those are the things that I think you can actually make when you discover those things. And that won't necessarily change a person, but it's interesting to say, hey, I notice this is a thing that whenever we talk about it, you really, you kind of heat up. What, what are you feeling at those points? Because I don't feel that. And I'm not saying I'm right and you're wrong about that. I realize that we just feel differently about that. And I wonder if you could help me understand and invite them to tell some of the story, you know, probe and push around a little bit in that. And you'll probably do some things that'll make it 
you know, a few steps better. This is, you know, my goal is, it's what I call WWBB instead of, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Uh, the problem, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would do a miracle, right? I, that doesn't help me. I can't do that. So how about WWBB? What would just be better? What would be better? And I can't change everything about this guy, but what would be a little bit better? What would be better if we didn't always yell at each other? Okay, good. Let's just work on that. And, you know, that kind of a process over time can make big changes. And even fairly immediately, it can change crisis to a painful background condition, which is still an improvement back to what would be better. So, hey, Rick, let me ask you a quick question. What's in that, those boxes right over your shoulder? Like when you turn around, oh, what are, what, <laughs> I see two boxes right there. What, what are, what's in those boxes? This is Tim's moment of seamless self-promotion. <laughs> of our books back there. <laughs> Caleb, I, I just bring that up to say yeah. we're trying to cram the whole book into a podcast. So I love yeah. what I love what Rick is oh, saying. Yeah. And the great thing about the book is we, we don't just say try to make it better, which I love that phrase, by the way. I think that's a great way to think about it. But but to lay it out in the book, we're talking about not weaponizing your beliefs. We're talking about something called conviction mapping, taking the time to find out the history of your conviction. And I think when Rick is saying make things better, I think doing that, just conviction mapping, finding out your history, these are really practical ways that we can just take it. Just So I love the 60% thing, Rick. I think that's good. Like very few people are 90, 100%. I'm just rock solid. I'm not moving and I don't even care what you say. Now they're out there for sure. Yeah. But the 60% people, I think we offer some thoughts about how to move them and improve the climate that could be really helpful. Uh, one other thing that really uh, stood out to me from uh, from the last time that we talked is, Tim, you had mentioned this thing called harsh startups. <laughs> and I cannot help, I see it all the time now um, in so many different scenarios. And I was just curious and wanted to ask the both of you, what are some things like harsh startups that get in the way of just good communication skills that we don't even think about or we don't even realize? You know, one thing that's in that vein uh, of the harsh startup is we have a harsh background condition. Hmm. So if you hop in your car and drive home and turn on the radio, you will hear harshness. If you listen to things or read your news sources, you will hear harshness. So constantly startup is being modeled to us by the media we consume, particularly social media. I was listening to an interview the other day that was really interesting. They were talking about the golden moment of American news. It said, actually, historically, American news has been extremely polarized. Newspapers back in the day were actually always put out by some particular agenda. You know, the classic thing we think of as a communist workers newspaper, you know. But that was just characteristic. Everybody had their agenda that they were putting into it. In the 1950s, 1960s, you suddenly had broadcast news that was absolutely intended to go into every American household. And so the people who were doing the news were thinking, I need to be able to talk to everybody. And they kept them operating with a bit of a a soft startup because they didn't want to lose someone because somebody had to stay and watch the Procter & Gamble advertisement halfway through. You know, that was how the gig worked. Then we began to do narrow casting with cable news. So there's 50 different cable news channels and Fox are the people who really exploited this. And wait a minute, I don't need everybody watching this. I just need a batch of committed people watching. So they began to narrow cast. And then with social media, and this is around 2010, 2009, 2011, that kind of a season, there hit a critical mass in things like Facebook and Twitter that you could, instead of doing broadcast and instead of doing narrowcast you could do my cast i just get my news i just get the news that i like and that makes no at that point there's no longer ever a need to think about your startup because your listeners are the people who are already on your side and then every day when you tune into your podcast you're getting harsh reinforced by everything you hear and I would just add to that, Caleb, like, like we all know what a harsh one, a, you know, like an over-the-top harsh one is. I cut you off when you're saying something. I raise my voice. 
I could even point my finger. But, but the, the more subtle ones are things like, okay, hey, let's just calm down and let's just think about this. Okay, which is the insinuating you've not thought about this. Here's another one. Listen, I've really studied the Bible on this issue. Okay, so here's what the Bible says. And it's like, oh, yeah. And I've been reading the Encyclopedia Britannica, right? It's like, <laughs> those to me are, are pseudo harsh startups that can do, they can do the exact same thing a full-blown one does. But there are these wonderful little ways that we try to co-opt it and shut. I like what Rick says. We don't want to shut it down. And many of us want to shut it down because we think we're, we're, we're absolutely rock solid right on this. And I'm not really interested in engaging you. I'm interested in setting you straight. Mm. And that attitude can be a really harsh startup. Uh, I just want a real quick follow up on that. Is there any ways that you can self-diagnose that you are falling into that pattern? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So John Gottman had, so we're, when we talk about harsh startups, we're mentioning a scholar named John Gottman who's one of the top relational scholars. And he wrote a wonderful book called Why Marriages Succeed, Why They Fail. But, but I would just say to your listeners, you don't need to be married to read it uh, mm -hmm. because he's really talking about relationships and he has a ton of self-diagnostic tests throughout the entire book where he's trying to get you to diagnose whether you're a classic harsh startup type person. Mm. One good. other thing I would encourage you to think about is your own self-talk. What, what, where do you go when you're out mowing the lawn? And I, for me, this is probably one of the things I realize the worst part of my character I find when I'm doing things like this, you know, the task that doesn't require my full attention. So my mind just kind of races. And I think about conversations I had with somebody and I just go snarky. I demonize them. I, and my, my self-talk becomes just like what I about social media. I'm not, I'm the soft startup. I'm painting it. I'm trying to make it as bad as I can to make me, you know, make me feel better about this person or this viewpoint that's bothering me. And boy, that self-talk is a is a killer that way. Because your self-talk you bring into all your conversations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh final thing I want to ask you is for the person who's listening and they're like, I like I want to lead more towards unity and leading, you know, the people that I'm responsible for more towards that. What one piece of advice would you give them? Could be something that we've talked about before, something else, but they're just trying to figure out where do I get started with this? What would you say to them? I'd go with Rick's. I think self-talk's a place to start. And I like what Rick is saying is where do you let yourself go uh, mentally when you're thinking about having this conversation? That's where Paul says, take all thoughts captive. I think we need to try to regulate how harsh we're being in our self-talk. I think the other thing that I would think is is uh, begin with a smaller group rather than a bigger group. Try the groups of fours, the groups of six, rather than groups of 40 or 60 or 400 or 600, uh, because you can control it and you can just say, guys, I just realized this is something I'd like to do better, but I don't know how to do it better. So I'd like to get a few people around me that we just practice talking about sometimes these difficult issues. And I know we won't all agree, um, but I'd love to have us all respect each other. I think a shame... Uh, the guy we had on the podcast a few uh, months ago now who did this with, he was a, a guy in Texas yeah. and he was black, the uh, one of the volleyball parents that, you know, they, their kids were in volleyball, would sit there together and uh, he was white and they were talking to each other in the midst of George Floyd things and said, hey, could we, do you think we could do this? And they said some very simple with a small group that was just tremendously effective and that's a wonderful model. In, in that sense, to uh, say, yeah, start small. And Caleb, yeah. let me just uh, just say, so we have resources at the Winston Conviction Project. We invite your listeners to check out. One is our podcast. It's called Tim's Podcast. Uh, no, <laughs> it's, called, it's called the Winston Conviction uh, Podcast. And you, you can find it at our website. Just go to winsomeconviction.com. And we have all of our podcasts. We have resources. The great thing about being part of a university is we just have a lot of resources we can draw upon. And so we, we kind of hope in our website will be a one-stop shop if people are really interested in finding our thoughts about how to have these winsome conversations. Yeah. And the book as well. And the book as well. And there you go. <laughs> some right behind right. Rick. Yeah. Some right there. <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, thank you both so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Caleb. 
Thanks, Caleb. So coming out of that conversation with Tim and Rick, like, and this isn't just something that I've been thinking about because of them, though I feel like I have been thinking about this a lot. Um, even beyond like our first conversation with them, is just the role that that listening is going to be play is going to play out going forward in our in our culture, in our society, uh, in in you know where I live in America as well. And I really think that listening is going to be the new superpower as well because everybody wants to be understood. But we don't have a whole lot of people who are seeking to understand as, uh, as Stephen Covey said, you know, he said, you know, seek to understand before being understood. And right now we just live in a society that really wants to be understood, but is not, not as keen to understanding other people as well. And so listening is a crucial component of that. And that's really one of the things that we want to do here on the podcast. And so just as I was thinking about this topic, I just was kind of thinking through some diagnostic questions of how do you know whether or not you're a good listener? And this isn't the end all be all, but just some questions that I thought of was this is, do you ever ask questions in your conversations or are you more concerned about giving your opinions? And if you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I feel like I ask uh, some questions. I would ask, well, do you ask the second question? And the second question is the follow-up question on what they just talked about. And there's not a scenario to where you ask the second question every time, but are you on a regular basis asking the second question? Am I genuinely interested in this person or am I more concerned with being interesting? Do I always feel like I have to add something to the conversation? I just have to get my opinion out there. I just have to make sure that I add I add this one last thing, this one last component to it. And then just the final question is, do you always feel like you have to have the last word? And you're tempted to go, I don't I don't feel like I have to do that. And yet, are you always the last one speaking? in the conversation. And so those are just some diagnostic questions that you could just ask yourself from time to time and help maybe self-diagnose your listening skills. And if you're really brave, maybe you can just ask the people around you of how well do you feel like they view you as a listener. And if I'm going to be honest, like this isn't like, this is something that I really sucked at for a long time. It has taken me a lot of work to get to where I am today, and I still have room to grow. And it's still like it still requires effort for me to not reflectively add my opinion to oh, to um, fight the temptation to always have the last word as well, and being okay with other people having the last word as well. And so that's just some stuff that I'm thinking about as well. And so. Uh, I would love to hear some of your takeaways from this episode. And so the best way to reach out to me is at Caleb J. Mason on Instagram. I would love to hear from you. Maybe some of the topics that you would love uh, for us to talk about or cover on the podcast as well. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the follow button and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a rating and write a review. That really helps as well. And I would greatly appreciate it also couple of quick uh, thank yous that I want to give is uh, first to Tim and Rick for being back on the podcast. It was great having you guys back on and uh, hopefully we could do it again another day. Uh, and then I want to say thanks to Garrett Oler who does the editing for this podcast and Sam Massey who uh, created the music for this podcast as well. Thank you for the both of you and just for or just making the podcast better. And so I think that's all that I have for today. And so until next time, Keep learning and keep growing.